So welcome to Creekside. We're continuing our series today on master questions, questions Jesus had asked when he was walking with his disciples and he was, when he was here about 2,000 years ago. So the question we're going to go over today is about knowing Jesus and having a knowing, a real personal relationship with God. So I thought I'd have a fun way to go over different ways you can know people by asking you some questions about myself. So if you flip your notes page over, you can write down your answers. If someone was here last service, don't cheat and look at their answers. But we're going to go 10 questions. Some will be really easy, some maybe not. But just a fun way about, you know, surface level knowing someone and a little deeper knowing someone. So question one, who am I? And don't shout it out. Someone, each service, just like, no! It's like, oh, you ruined it. Whole, whole point gone. Question two, uh, what is my job? Number three, how many siblings do I have? I'll give you a hint on that one. If you're not writing down a double-digit number, you are wrong. Number four, what is my wife's name? What's so funny about that one? <laughs> Number five, how many children do I have and what are their names? Number six, what am I afraid of? Really putting myself out there when I tell you what I'm afraid of, by the way. Number seven, that'll make sense when you find out what the answer is. What is my favorite thing to do at home? Number eight, what event in my life gave me the passion to work specifically with kids? Now, not necessarily what gave me my call to ministry, but what, gave, what event gave me specifically my call to work with kids? All right, number nine, what name do I hate being called? Now, it is nothing profane, so don't write something down that you wouldn't say out loud in church, right? It's nothing of that nature, but there is a name that I hate being called. What is that name? Someone's laughing already. I can't imagine what they're writing down. <laughs> yes. I'm going to call him this after church, see what he says. And number 10, true or false. So this one, again, if you've got all of them wrong, you have no idea anything about me. You have a 50-50 shot on this one. True or false, I cry easily during movies or even when I'm reading a book. Anyone think they got 10 for 10 on this? Kyle, I see you every day. It's not fair. And you were here first two services, so. <laughs> All right, question number one. Who am I? Dustin Warford. Nice and easy. What's my job? Children's pastor. How many siblings do I have? Whoa, lots of high numbers. It's good. You're close. I am number seven of 15 total kids. If you said 14, you're right, because that's 14 siblings, but yeah. So there, there are 15 kids in my family, and I'm number seven. I'm right in the middle of every one of them. That's why I probably have this job where I, everyone has to look at me because I was totally ignored as a child. <laughs> it's not true. It's not true. Um, what is my wife's name? Stephanie. Stephanie. Um, how many children do I have, and what are their names? 
one, and it's Aurora. In all reality, um, she prefers to go by Princess Aurora, so don't ever forget that. She was at a party yesterday, and there was a face painter there, and so my, my nephew Ethan got Spider-Man all over his face, and uh, my, my other nephew Tyler, we call him Ty-Ty, I don't know what was on his face, it was just a mismatch of stuff. Aurora had a crown on her head. And they said, no one prompted her to ask that at all. What did you want on your head? I want a crown, because I'm a princess. It's like, well, when you name your daughter after a Disney princess, that's, she's going to start owning up to it, isn't she? So, all right, what am I afraid of? I don't like, I'm not afraid of mayonnaise, but I really don't like it. But a lot of people don't want spiders, no. I am afraid of the dark. True story. I am afraid of the dark. When the lights go out and you can't see anything, my eyes are wide open and I'm just like looking around like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, drives me crazy. I can't fall asleep. I just sit there and my heart's pounding. Stephanie falls asleep so fast. Like, lights are out, good. Boom, she's gone. And but, so when she goes out, I have a nightlight. Click that thing on, then it's a good night. I hate the dark. I hate it. Now, there's a reason the devil's called the Lord of Darkness, okay? I stay away from it. What is my favorite thing to do at home? Who said playing with Aurora? If you add Stephanie in with that one, so like just hang out with Stephanie and Aurora, that's, that is the right answer. It doesn't really matter what we're doing. When I'm at home with Steph and Aurora, it's just best time of my life. I love it. Now, what event in my life gave me a passion to work specifically with kids? Now, see, I said not just what gave me my call to ministry, because church camp gave me my call to ministry, but specifically to work with kids. I actually, I shared in one of my other sermons I had given last year, I have a little brother who he actually passed away when he was two. I was in the fourth grade. But he was, he was born and diagnosed with a medically fatal disease. And when he lived to two, and then he went to go be with Jesus. But it was through growing up with him and loving him that I really got a passion for children and loving children. So my little brother Casey really, really called me to be with kids. All right, on a better note, what name do I hate being called? Dusty. Dusty. <laughs> it is Dusty. I've, I've, I don't know why I've always hated being called Dusty. I'm getting over it now because a Pastor Terry calls me Dusty, and you really can't get mad at your boss, you know, so it's just, he calls me Dusty. And fun fact on that one, too, when I first met Stephanie in college, we were not dating at the time, but when we met, she found out that I didn't like being called Dusty, so she decided to call me Dusty every time she saw me. And then she married me. <laughs> and then last one, true or false, I easily cry during movies or even reading books. It's, it's so true. It is so true. I'm such a baby when it comes to watching movies. Whenever there's an emotional scene, I'm like, oh my goodness, I lose it. Um, Stephanie will, you know, sometimes she gets well up, sometimes she looks at me, she goes, I didn't cry that time. That wasn't that, that, wasn't that emotional. I'm like, whatever, you're heartless. And then and it's, we've, t- you know, we've taken those quizzes where it's like, what are you in the relationship? I always score as the girl. I'm always the emotional one in this relationship. Very emotional person. And those of you, though, who know me really well, because some of you knew that right away, Dustin cries during movies? Yep, seen it happen. It happens. Now, I did this because I wanted to do a simple but, you know, fun illustration on there's ways you can know people. There's surface knowledge, you know, what you can hear from other people or things you may hear in passing, but then there's a, deep, there's a much deeper personal knowledge you can get from people. But one of those comes with more than just knowing or hearing from other people. You have to have invested a relationship with someone, and you really get to know more about their lives. I think it's pretty safe to say here that everyone has at least one person in their life that they know really, really well. 
whether it's uh, one of your kids, your your spouse, a roommate, just a best friend. I know there's, there's someone in here that you could say, I could answer any, almost any question you ask me, I know this person, because you spent a lot of time with them. You have a really good personal relationship with them. They're, they're one of your best friends. They're in your life for a reason. But then there's people that you know, you know, people that, you know, you don't know know those people, but you know who they are. You know what they're about a little bit. You know a little bit about them. You've heard from other people what they do and things, but you don't have a deeper understanding of who they are. Now, I know that this has happened to me. I was... Um, specifically not knowing someone until I actually got to spend time with them. When I was working at another church, um, it's also called Creekside, so I can still say I've worked at Creekside my whole life. Not affiliated with this Creekside in any way, but another church called Creekside. There was a new worship pastor coming, and his name was Reggie. And so the worship world, Reggie has done a lot of stuff, and a lot of different people know who Reggie Coates is. So we heard Reggie was coming for an interview, and we're like, oh, okay, the name sounds familiar. I went online and looked him up, and I found all this information out about Reggie. Found out that he was a very, very happy person. Like, everyone that anything had to say about Reggie was, he's just, he's just a happy guy. He'll always smile. He'll make you feel good. He's a loving person, loves everyone. But the more you heard people say it, the more the questions started to come, like, is he really this happy? Like, can anyone really be? About everything. He was just a very happy guy. But it was almost to the point where people that didn't know him, they would see him smiling so much, people could even start to question, is that just a fake face? Like, is, is there... Is he really genuinely that happy? So he got, he got the job as a worship pastor, and I got to hang out with him, and it was really, really fun. I got to spend time with him, and I got to hear his story. Now, it's amazing how happy he was after he shared with me his background. So Reggie had, just real quickly, um, his mom had died when he was a kid. He had walked in on her. Um, she had died in her bed, and he was just a young kid, but he walked in, and he found his mom. Um, he'd grown up in a rough area with lots of just violence, and there was a kid at school that actually threatened to take his life and brought a weapon to school to show that he was going to do it. And by the grace of God, you know, Reggie was able to get away from that situation and be okay. But his life was full of these tragic stories, and the more you hear those things, and then you see how happy he is today, you look at him and you go, man, this man has the joy of God in his heart. There's no other way to explain how happy he is because he has Jesus, and he genuinely was a happy person, and he still is. Whenever I call him, we haven't worked together for five years now, but I'll still call him now and then, and he does the same thing, go, hey, Reggie, it's Dustin. Hey, Dustin, how you doing? He's just an excited guy, and what's great is I know how genuine it is because I know that a lot of people without Christ going through what he went through could have a hard time finding happiness, but the man is married, has some great kids, and he's just a happy person. And so that's an example I got to have personally of, I didn't know, know him at first, but once I really got to know him, I got to really experience some real joy because of the joy that he had. And man, a relationship can get so much deeper when you put some effort into really getting to know someone. Now, translate that relationship into a relationship with God. Some people can say they know God. You know, people, there's people all over the world that say, yeah, I know God, I know God, but do they really know God? Or do they just know about God? Some people, people can fall into one of the following categories. I've heard about Jesus, and I know some verses. I grew up in a church. I went to a Catholic school. I was born in a Christian home. My parents were church leaders. I go to church. I give and I serve. I've seen Jesus do some big things. Now, do all of these things give you firsthand personal relationship and knowledge about Jesus? Not really. Some of them do, but not all of them do. If you fall into the category of, you know, I've heard about God, there's a big difference between hearing and knowing. Now, our world, we're full of people, but sometimes we can just be so passive when it comes to wanting to grow in Jesus and wanting to know more about God. And it becomes just something that's put on the back burner, things we can put off till later. 
but there's just such a difference between knowing Him in your head and knowing Him in your heart, which brings the question that we're going to ask today is, do you really know Christ personally? Do you really know Him personally, or is He just this big, mythical, super being out there who watches over you, you know a little bit about Him, but you don't really get to spend time with Him? Do you know Him personally? Now, if you open your Bibles to the book of John, we're going to read from chapter 18 today. Jesus actually asks a question right along this line to a man, and we're going to read about it. John 18, verses 28 to 34, and it says this. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside, summoned Jesus, and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? So, Pilate right here gets asked directly from Jesus, do you really know me or have you just heard about me? And Pilate does something incredible. He stays passive. If you read through that that scripture, Pilate refuses to get to engage in a conversation with Jesus. He answers with his own questions. And they just, they go questions back and forth. And Pilate ultimately washes his hands of the whole situation and says that this is not my decision. This is your guys' decision. And he has Jesus put to death, but he puts it back on the people. He doesn't take the chance to get to know Jesus. He just passes the buck off to other people and lets them make the call. Now, unfortunately for Pilate, uh, history shows that he dealt with so much indecision in his life and passivity, it's a weird word to try and say, that he was actually taken out of his role as the governor. He was removed and he was exiled from the land and had to deal with his indecisiveness for the rest of his life. You see, he had a prime opportunity right there to talk to Jesus, and he didn't take it. Now, in his position, he had to have heard about Jesus before. He was the governor of the land, so he had to have heard at least stories or rumors of this man who was doing these incredible things. But even in that moment, he never took the time to personally find out what is this guy about, what is he doing, what is this, who is this Jesus? He just relied on what he heard from other people and ultimately did what he did by having Jesus crucified. Now, some of us here have been raised in a church. I know I was. My grandpa was the pastor before Pastor Terry. My dad was a youth pastor. I'm the children's pastor. So needless to say, I've been to Sunday school, a lot of Sunday school. Like from, from diapers to now I'm teaching in Sunday school. I've, I've been there a lot, and I love Bible stories. I was the kid that everyone got mad at just because I knew all the answers to all the questions. I raised my hand, shouted out, it was this, it was this, it was this person, this person did it, and I would get candy for every right answer, and then my mom and dad would be like, can you please stop giving him candy? Because I would come home with just bags of candy. And it, just, and it was so much fun. But I, I love the stories, you know, the story of Noah and Jonah, and I knew the story of Jesus, and then my personal favorite, Joseph. Joseph was, you know, a kid who had tons and tons of siblings, and he was dad's favorite. Boom, I can relate to Joseph. Absolutely. <laughs> my brothers were here first service, one of them was shaking his head, and the other one goes, it's true. It's true, he really is dad's favorite. <laughs> so I had a whole lot of Bible smarts. I had a whole lot of knowledge up in my head, But there's a huge difference between having knowledge in your head and translating it down into your heart. Because when it gets down into your heart, then you can start acting on it. Then you can start letting it help, you know, nurture and mold your decisions and shape your life. But if you keep it up in your head, it's not going to do those things. 
And that's what I had a whole lot of. And unfortunately, that's what the Pharisees had a whole lot of. They had all the knowledge up in their heads. They were very intellectual people. They knew what the Scriptures had said, but they weren't letting the Scriptures mold their lives. And they, were, they made so many ridiculous laws and accusations and things because of it, because they didn't know how to translate God's Word into their hearts. Now, don't get me wrong. I think that having a lot of head knowledge, it is smart to have. It's good to have, you know, to know where to go to in Scripture for different things, to know uh, what verses to turn to when you're in times of need. Memorizing verses and having them to help get you through some hard times is super, super important. But I think that when we fail to translate what we have in our head into our hearts, that's where we start to become just people full of knowledge, and we have a very surface-level relationship with God. A, a, A relationship where you know somebody, but you don't personally know somebody isn't a very deep relationship at all. Now, how good was your, would your friendship be with your best friend if you never called them when you needed something, or better yet, they called you and you never answered? Just one of those things. You know, if you have that deep relationship, you're going you're gonna to want to be there for someone. You're going to want to let them help you out in your, in your times of need. You're going to want to help them when you can. You're going to let your relationship mold and change who you are. And ultimately, that's what we have to have with God. If we're going to know Him in a more intimate level, we have to let Him in to mold our lives. I had to make a serious uh, conclusion in my own life. You know, was I going to translate it to my heart or was I just going to take that knowledge, write it off as those are great Bible stories and go on with my life? You have to make that translation on your own and you have to decide, are you going to personally grow with Jesus? And one of the things we do when we, uh, when we grow that relationship with Jesus is we come here to church. But the thing about church I want to make sure we all understand is it's easy to listen but not to act. See, I, I love church. Obviously, I love church. I, I work here. But... I've been coming to church you know, my, my whole life. I've been raised in the church. I think church is super important, but I don't think it's enough if that's the only amount of God you're putting into your, week all, uh, into your life all week long. Because in all reality, we're here for an hour to an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. And if that's the only time you're spending growing with God, do you think that's really enough to let you grow personally with God on a regular basis? Especially when we come here and we get to sing, and we get to share with each other, and we get to celebrate. And then, now, don't get me wrong, I'm, I don't wanna, I'm not trying to bag church at all. I think church is super, super important. But I'm saying that I think if, if we're relying on Sunday morning coming and listening to somebody else dictate our entire relationship with God, then we're really missing a big chunk of having that personal walk with Him. Colossians 3.16 says this in the context of how important uh, the church setting is. Let the Word of God dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. See, Paul writes this letter to the Colossians, and he's saying it's so important that when we come together and we teach and we admonish that we are having community. So that's like what we get to do here on a Sunday. Hebrews 10.25 says this, Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. See, the celebration, what we do here on a Sunday, I think is very, very important. And I personally love it. I think the, the band is great. The ushering, we get to go and, and just worship for God. It's great. The sitting at the tables. I don't know of any other churches that do the tables thing. And personally, I, I love getting to sit down and talk and meet new people. It's super, super important. And we get to build each other up. And we get to share our lives and really help each other. But that's just one hour out of a whole week that we get. And we need to make sure that we're also growing in our relationship personally, one-on-one with God. See, Pilate was a victim of this. He had heard the stories. He had heard rumors and things, but he didn't investigate on his own. He didn't pursue on his own. I want to know God better. And by, knowing, by pursuing God, I know that if I know him better, it'll allow him to know me. But I'll know what he wants me to do with my life because I'm pursuing his will in my heart. 
There's different ways we communicate through God. Uh, we communicate through prayer. We communicate uh, through quiet time and reading scripture. We communicate through music and just having that one-on-one time with him. I think having a quiet time is super, super important. You know, sitting down and just saying, God, I'm going to spend some time in your word. I'm going to spend some time with you and really just reveal something new to me about you today. Really taking that time to grow. One of, uh, one of my favorite verses that talks about, you know, God giving you something that I really think you need a personal relationship with him to understand is Philippians 4, 6, and 7. It's also my wife's favorite verse. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. If you do this, you will experience God's peace, which is far more wonderful than the human mind can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and your minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. You see, the more we talk to God, the more we experience walking with God, the more we share ourselves with God and we get onto that deeper personal level with him, the more we can understand that, man, we can't do things on our own. And when times get really, really hard, that's when we get to experience the peace of God coming over us. That's when we get to go, you know what, God, I can't do this on my own. Thank you for helping me through these things. But it's through that relationship we get to understand what he can do for us and how he can be with us. Now, what's great about this verse, too, is the apostle Paul wrote it. But he wrote it at a very, very hard time in his life. You see, Paul wrote it when he was in prison. And he was in prison specifically for doing the work of God. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I can only hope one day if I really, really face persecution that I'll be able to stay as strong as what the example Paul gives us. Because, man, Paul was persecuted and laughed at. And there was, there was a story where Paul actually got stoned for preaching. And then now he's arrested and in jail. And what is he doing? He's saying, trust God, praise God. He finds joy in, like, everything he's doing. And man, that's, talk about, that's a time where some people could turn away, right? It's like, I'm working for God. Oh, they don't like me. I'm working for God. They tried to kill me. I'm working for God. Now I'm in jail. I quit. <laughs> New job. <laughs> Career change. I'm not doing this anymore. But man, he didn't. He kept on going and he helped plant and build and build up pastors in other churches because he knew how important it was to spread the word of God. And he found the joy through his relationship. Philippians 3, Paul talks about knowing God. And so he says this, I want to know Christ Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Now, Paul says the key phrase there, I want to know Christ. Now, when he says know Christ, the Greek translation for this verse, I'm going to butcher the word. I'm just going to say it the way I think I should say it, and I'm going to be consistent with it. So the word in the Greek is gnoskin. So gnoskin Now, this word for knowledge and know is not a third-party knowledge. It's not even an intellectual knowledge, which is coming from Paul is big because he was a very intellectual person. He was a Pharisee, so he had Pharisee training. He knew things, but this word is much deeper than that. Gnoskin means a very, very intimate personal knowledge. Now, coming from his background, again, that shows how deep this word meant and why he would use it in such a way. It goes beyond reading a book, beyond reading a scroll, beyond text. It's very, very personal. Now, in the Old Testament, the word gnoskin is actually used when it talks about Adam and Eve. Just to give you an idea of how deep this knowledge is, it would said, Adam knew his wife and she conceived. And it's the same word for knowing and knowledge, gnoskin, in that text. So it's a very intimate knowledge. Hebrew uses the word yada. But again, that word yada is a very intimate knowing. That's the desire Paul has in his heart. He doesn't just want to surface, I can see you once a week, I can hang out with you, you want to go have food, yeah, cool, and then I won't talk to you for three months. He wants to have a very deep personal relationship with God, like the one a husband would have with his wife. Intimate, you know each other, you know everything about each other, you share life with each other. He wants to share that with Christ. Now, the word yada 
Just think of that next time someone's trying to explain something to you and they go, and yada, 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 yada. You can look at them and go, do you know what you just said? <laughs> Chances are they don't. But it's, it's very, very deep and very, very personal. It's beyond any surface-level relationship that Paul wants. He wants the deepest relationship with God. And that goes beyond more than hearing what other people are saying. We can hear what other people say, but that's not going to grow us deeper until we dive in and do it ourselves. Paul also says that he wants to know the power and resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Participation in sufferings, man, that just does not sound like fun. Why would anyone say, God, help me participate in your suffering? No one really does pray that, right? I mean, it's just like, pray for pain? No, not really, but Paul, sa- Paul says it for this reason. He says, man, if you want to know Christ, you have to, be, you have to participate with Christ. You have to be everything with him, to know him, to participate with him. And man, Christ did some suffering. Christ did a lot of suffering in his ministry, ultimately paying the ultimate price and giving his own life for us. But Paul knew that he wanted to become like him in death. He wanted to suffer with Christ because the reason he wanted to suffer is because through these sufferings, when we see that we're persecuted, when we're going through really, really hard times, it's then that we can really see God working in our lives to pull us out of these times. It's then that we can really, really test our faith and really trust in God that he can get us through these hard things. And we can look back on our life and say, wow, there is no possible way I could have ever gotten through that. But I know I did because I have God in my life and he showed me how to get through this. He showed me how I can make my life better. He showed me what it means to love me. And man, that is the suffering we want to engage in, suffering that allows us to fully rely on God. Paul lists out it can be mental, it can be physical, it can be emotional, it can, it can be spiritual, but this knowledge, this Gnoskin knowledge comes with participating with God. The more we participate with him, the more we are going to know about him, and the more we're, he's going to be able to reveal his will for our lives into our hearts. To get to, we'll get to know his compassion, we'll get to know his strength, and we'll get to know his love. Now, one of the greatest examples, I think, in Scripture of suffering uh, we find in the book of Job. Has anyone here like, actually read the whole book of Job? Man, that poor guy, right? Really? And so if, if you haven't read the book of Job and you don't know who he is at all, just some history on him. Job was a God-fearing man, knew who God was, a very, very wealthy man. In fact, um, the Bible actually says in Job 1, he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. So Job, very wealthy, very powerful, very good man. He had seven sons, three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, 500 donkeys, and numerous servants. That's a lot of animals to clean up after. But back then, animals was also a sign of prosperity and wealth. So this man was wealthy. So Satan comes to God and puts, he says he wants to test Job. He thinks that the only reason Job loves God and says he's a God-honoring man is because of how wealthy he is. And so Satan says, God, if you let me take that from him, I bet you he'll curse you and turn away. So God lets Satan do it with the one rule that you can't kill him. So Satan goes to work. In a matter of minutes, Job loses everything. One servant comes up and says, all of your sheep have either been killed or captured, and I'm the only servant watching them that made it back alive. Right away, another servant comes up. All 3,000 of your camels, captured or killed, I'm the only one that made it back alive. 500 oxen, all of them, they're all killed, I'm the only one that made it back alive. 500 donkeys, I'm the only servant that made it back alive, they're all gone. And then to top it off, another one comes and says, your kids were having a feast and the house fell down and they are all dead. All of your kids. Now, Job, he was the kind of guy who, when his kids would have a party, and it said that a lot, his kids would have great feasts, he was, uh, something he would do is he would take an animal after the feast and sacrifice and say, God, forgive my kids, I have no idea what they were doing in that party. 
don't know what's going on, but just forgive them. Here's my sacrifice. So he loved his kids, and he wanted them to have great lives. And so for all of this to happen, man, one after another, this wasn't like he lost his sheep, and then times were hard, and his animals slowly died, and then kids were leaving. This was one after another. He lost everything. And his reaction, he drops down to the ground and worships. It is not the first reaction you expect for someone in that situation, is it? I mean, I, I can only hope one day that if I were to lose everything, I would still say, God give you the glory, because I know that that would be hard. It would be so hard, but he went down and worshiped. Now, throughout the rest of the book, Job, he starts talking, and he starts asking God why, and he has some friends that come. Oh, and on top of that, he started getting boils, so he started losing his dignity along with everything else. He has some friends that come up, and they see what he's going through, and they start sitting with him. They start praying with him, and they start off by giving him some good advice, and then it just goes downhill from there. They start telling him some things that aren't true. They start accusing him of things like, well, one of them even says, obviously, you're a horrible person for all this to happen to you, and they start giving him some bad advice, and ultimately, Job has to turn to God. And he starts asking God, it's like, why? Why am I going through this? I don't think I deserve this. And to summarize it, he basically says, God, if we were in a court of law right now, and there was, you know, people hear my story, and why did you do this? They'd side with me. Like, I really, he never turned and cursed God or blamed God or said, God, I'm never going to talk to you again. He was just asking why. It's like, God, I don't think I deserve this. Why? And so God, you know, hears him and has this conversation with him. And God says, really? Do you think if there were two parties here that they'd, they'd rule in your favor? Let's talk about this. And he has this great conversation with Job. And he takes Job through this visual encounter over creation. And God gets to share with him the wonders of his, his creation and the power of his love. And through all this, he starts asking Job questions. Questions so deep and questions so, so crazy that the, the human mind can't answer. Job couldn't answer them. And even today, with the almighty power of Google and Siri, we cannot answer these questions because we don't know the exact mind of God. We don't know his timeline. That's why we have to seek his knowledge and have him point us in the right direction. Now, through all this, Job is learning. And at the very, very end, Job says something great. God shows him this. He, to- he tells God he trusts him and he loves him. And he says in chapter 42, verse 5, My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. See, Job learned this because of his pursuit for answers. He had heard all these things about God, and he had based his life about following what he heard about God. But through this experience, through his suffering and his trials, he learned what it meant to really converse and let God in on your life. Now, at the end of this, Job got double everything that he'd had before. God restored everything and multiplied it even more. And Job, was we get to see just what a great man he is for following God's heart in all of this. Even though he didn't know exactly what it was at first, he pursued it. And he got to that point where he could have that deep relationship with God. I like to think our relationship with Jesus should be along those lines. It needs to be something so deep, so personal, so passionate, so intimate that we're not just going off of what other people say. We're not just going off of what we hear um, someone say even from up here. Because when we hear something, we want to make sure we go and we spend that time and we talk to God about it. Because my relationship with God is not going to be exactly the same as anyone else's relationship with God. God's going to reveal things to me that he may not reveal to you because he has a different purpose for my life, but I'm only going to know that when I get to that gnoskin love with God, that gnoskin knowledge with Jesus. I have to pursue him personally. I have to make sure it's not a secondhand relationship. It's not a relationship I'm living through somebody else. It's my own personal walk with God. And one day I hope when, when I get to talk to God, when I get to see Jesus and, and he says, welcome, I get to say, I know you. And he gets to tell me, I know you, because I spent time to pursue him on my own. Now, as I close today, I want to give us some challenges before we leave. 
When you go home today, like I said, one hour a week is not going to be the most, you, you, you can, there's more. There's so much more you can do. Can you imagine getting to know your, your spouse by saying, I'm only going to listen to you or talk to you one hour a week, and then that's it. Then you're cut off. Don't talk to me ever again. Now, I know some people could joke about it and go, that would be a blessing, but it's not true. I know it's not true. Um, one of my favorite things to do is sit at home with Stefan and Aurora. Like I said, it doesn't matter what we're doing. I just love spending time with them. Can you imagine if, uh, if we have that same passion for spending time with our Lord? Just what do you want to do? You know, I just want to spend time with him. I just want to get to know him more. So some challenges for you guys. When we leave here today, pursue him. Pursue him like you need to find him desperately. Find out what it is, how you can add more of him into your life. Uh, take time to speak with him. Whether it's on your own, um, in your home, whether it's in your car, on your way to work, find some time just to have a conversation with God. Find a quiet time, a time where you can just pick up the word and you can say, God, I'm going to spend a few minutes today. I'm just going to read some scripture and I'm, through this, I want you to reveal something to me. Help me learn something new. Maybe you won't learn something new every time, but I know the more you do it, the more you're going to learn about God. So really, really take the chance, take the time to really dive in. Make your relationship with God your relationship with God. Make it personal, make it deep, and through that, you can allow him to be your absolutely best friend. Not just your Lord, but your best friend who's going to be there. When you can look back and say, man, I could not do this alone, but because I know you, God. Not just what such and such said about you, I know you, and I know I want more of you in my life.